Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Welcome. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dan Fleetwood. He is the president of Research and Insights at Question Pro. He has over 15 years of market research experience and is passionate about the role that software plays in helping businesses. Dan believes that software can help companies garner better feedback, uncover actionable insights, and ultimately develop better products and services. Question Pro is a leading online survey and insight platform partnering with the majority of the Fortune 1000 companies to help guide them in their research needs. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for joining our podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's just go back kind of where you started. You've been in the business for 15 years in market research. Tell me some of the aha moments that have led you along the path to get to where you are now. Yeah, it's, it's good. I'm glad you asked me this question because it's one I like just to ask people when I run into them in the, in the industry because I'm always curious how they got their start. I find that there's obviously like there's two tracks, like people that were set out, they went to school for market research and they knew that's what they wanted to do and others kind of stumbled into it somehow. So I guess I'm a mix of the two a little bit. I got a degree in business administration with a specialization in marketing and then I didn't know what to do. So I went, you know, got an internship at a research firm, ended up, you know, really loving it. Even despite, you know, one of my first jobs was um, checking cross tab tables and making sure, you know, they were accurate. So not the most glamorous thing in the world, but then that, you know, kind of turned into project director and so on. So kind of, you know, stumbled into it a little bit. I thought I'd be more on the advertising side of, of marketing, but no, the research path is like, you know, led me to here and it's been, it's been fun so far. So I think that was kind of an aha moment for me is like realizing like, Hey, just because you set out to do something doesn't mean that that's what you're necessarily going to do. And I think it just has a way of working itself out. So, and that was, I mean, 15, yeah, 15, almost, you know, 18 years ago now. So. Wow. Are there any uh, projects or any moments that really, you know, further stoked your passion for the industry? Yeah, I would say like, you know, one of the big accounts I got put on early on was Microsoft. So that was a fun one because it was working w- specifically with recruiting for their like playtests and usability studies. So we got to go out to the campus and, um, you know, play with new games because they wanted really to get us in depth and immersed in the experience. So we knew what it was like from even recruiting folks in and the, the whole end to end process. So that was fun just because you realize like, hey, you're recruiting people to do, you know, something fun and exciting. And they're actually influencing the games and the levels that they play. So that was, you know, that was a fun project that I think led me, you know, to continue on. And then I'm um, similarly working with, you know, like T-Mobile. This is all in the Seattle area where I was, you know, originally based at the time and where I was from. So I got to work with a lot of companies there in this in similar capacity. And just doing research for them, I thought was really interesting because I think, I think you realize it in like the day-to-day like research, if you're on the platform side, if you're on the client side, obviously you're a little more familiar with it like that because that's where you're doing research for your company. But like in my role, it's like, you know, it's a lot of like, you know, software, it's a lot of marketing, it's a lot of sales, but it's fun to sometimes like bring your head up out of the, you know, out of the sand a little bit and like, oh, wow, like people are actually using our platform to do 
research that it really affects their products and revenue. So when I start to think about the holistic picture like that, that's those are some of the things that get me, you know, really excited. I'm sure that was a great foundation from where you started, you know, with cross tabs and going up to laying the foundation for where you are now. And you're actually more become passionate about market research from a software uh, level. And uh, what led you to that in terms of going more to the software platform arena? Yeah. So early in my career, I was working for a research firm that also had a, a data collection part with Telephone Center. And we also would do online surveys as well. And that was, you know, I would say more early on in the online survey days, like, you know, circa 2005 to 10, you know, somewhere in that range where I really saw like this trend of things becoming, you know, getting more online, more and more uh, companies were doing online, online research. So I wanted to make the shift. And that's really where I went to the tech side, partly because, you know, growing up in the Seattle area and, you know, Microsoft is in your backyard. I think like that tech kind of influence was always, you know, kind of played a role in, in what I wanted to do. And it was interesting. I thought like, well, um, you know, a lot of interesting things that I can apply from like a tech standpoint and a research standpoint. And obviously, you know, we talked about it kind of stumbled into research, but I always kind of loved like the, the tech aspect of it. So it was a, it was a good mix of the two and got my opportunity there. So that was exciting. And um, I guess, you know, kind of an aha moment for me was like, well, I can really mash up these two interests and do something that I really like. So it was, it ended up being obviously, you know, I think a good, a good relationship there. You know, early on in the industry, I think there was some skepticism and some leeriness to use online platforms. Where do you think things stand now in, in the industry and in terms of acceptability, adoption, and, you know, the usability of online platforms? Yeah, I think it's definitely proved out that it's, you know, it's acceptable. And obviously, if you just take a look from like a, a revenue standpoint and where like money is being invested, and you saw like big companies getting you know, the acquired or purchased for large sums. So I think that kind of proves it a little bit. But even just within the industry, I think, you know, obviously there's more and more online, like less telephone research and so forth. So I definitely think it's fully adopted on. I remember like the early days that you're referring to, with, you know, DIY research and so forth. Is it going to, you know, kill everything? And I think it's largely proven that it hasn't. Like, I think it's kind of opened a gamut for market research and really widened the net because more and more people can do it, which exposes more people which I think there's two sides of the coin there. I actually think it's a pretty, it's a good thing because more people get exposure, more people can do research. And obviously for, you know, a uh, platform like Question Pro helps us out, um, not only from a DIY perspective, but also actually I think it helps out from an enterprise perspective too, because if you get more and more people giving them the ability to do research, they might just by proxy become interested in it and want to choose that either as a career path or even in their careers, just doing more research, getting more educated on there. So I think it can, it's easily like the DIY sort of um, like black cloud that was over it early on, especially from like some staunch researchers. It's largely, I think, moved on now. And I think is is more and more becoming, you know, commonplace. And, you know, if you want to do research, you, you, know, you have to do online surveys in this day and age. How much of an impact do you think COVID had on this uh, adoption and acceptability? I think COVID had an impact quite a bit, but I would say, more to me, COVID had an impact on getting different features and functionality and pushing the advancement of these within the industry. So if you take online surveys, I think we, you know, even on the sample side and on the online survey side, you know, we saw a record number of, of completes and surveys being, you know, put through the platform and also sample respondents and, and so forth 
largely because people, you know, they were home, they didn't do anything. They were, you know, they had the time to take surveys. But I think from a technology perspective, it had a profound impact on just pushing out additional features and really adapting to the times because all of a sudden, nobody could do in-person research. And you had to, we had to come up with something that allowed folks to do this. And with one of our products is a communities platform. And you know, we talk about aha moments was, hey, we've been wanting to do this video discussion thing for a long time. Now's like the perfect opportunity. So we got a team of dedicated um, developers together and said, hey, we need to push this out quickly. Got that ramped up and got it pushed out largely because of the pandemic. And I don't think, you know, we weren't alone in that. It's certainly I saw a rise of other platforms and more so I think was the adoption of it, I, of embracing these online methods for qualitative research. I think oftentimes in market research, we're slow to adapt. I think most the most people in market research, I don't think are like early adopters of new technology. You have a certain percentage, sure, that are, but most like they're tried and true methods. So I think one thing the pandemic did is push people outside of their comfort zone and needing to try these things out of necessity. And that's largely what I think the pandemic helped out with in the industry is getting these you know technologies out like video discussions. But also, I mean, you're right to your earlier point, it did help out with uh, online surveys and the advancement of them as well. So tell me a little bit about Question Pro and what you do and, and, and what your platform offers as well. Yeah, so Question Pro is a you know online survey insights platform. What what I do specifically is I lead the research suite, which is really four product lines with a bolt-on fifth that I can talk about. So it's like the research edition surveys, which lends itself to conjoint, max diff, advanced logic, block randomization, the whole gamut there. It's online communities, which uh, many of our clients are making use of, not only because the the platforms integrated together. So you can do your, you know, your survey research outside of the community, or you can do that survey research in the community. So it, it's a nice play there. And then two other components are, you know, audience, online sample, and then research services. And then we have um, sort of a bolt-on product that we've launched in the past year, which is Insights Hub, which is really a uh, an insights repository where companies can organize their data, store it to be accessed later and their whole, whole taxonomy and things that they can use to categorize the data. I think it kind of goes to this piece that I wrote in the Green Book about atomic research, which um, is really around organizing all of the different data points. Like if you think about all the research that is conducted within a company, I mean, it's massive, right? So you need some way to break it down into, into bite-sized nuggets that you can then use for research, not only at that time, but later on in, in the process as well. Like if you need a way to categorize your, all the research that you've done, you know, how do you do it without an insights repository? So that's largely, largely the aspect there. And I think an easy way to think about it and, you know, is a, a book, you know, by James Clare, Atomic Habits. If, you know, I don't know if you've read that one, but it's something that I kind of equate to this atomic research because it's all about breaking things down into small manageable pieces that then can have a, a profound effect. And, He's speaking about habits, but I think we're speaking about research here, right? Where you can break research down, put it into into bite-sized like nuggets of information that then people can digest over time, and it doesn't, you know, die in the in the SharePoint or on someone's laptop or when someone leaves a company. So that's really what what that aims and the Insights Hub platform aims to to solve. 
So if I hear you correctly, you're saying atomic research is really breaking it down. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yep. Okay. Give me an example, if you don't mind, like uh, how one did it traditionally and how atomic research uh, does it a little bit differently. Yeah. So I think really atomic research is once the, once the data is collected and the results are analyzed, like what happens to the data then? Does it, does it just live in a, in a SharePoint? Does it live on someone's laptop? Is it easily found so people can consume it later? Can they refer back to it easily? I think that's really what atomic research aims to solve is what do you do with all this information? You have to break it down. You have to add different taxonomies. You have to be able to refer back to it easily. And those bite-sized nuggets really help out with that. And that's really what atomic research is, is just you know breaking down the information so that you can not only store it and access it easily, but that you can refer to it later when you need additional insights, or maybe you've already done this research and you know someone in another department, um, you know maybe someone on excuse me in another department did the research you didn't know about it. But if you if the organization adopts this insights repository, they can everybody has access to this sort of the democratization democratization of research. Excuse me, that um, you know can be allowed in these companies. So I know mean, we we felt large. Um, like a large department store chain with with doing this exact same thing. You know, they had a lot of UX research. They had a lot of wall research. They had a lot of um, even secondary research that they needed some spot where this was a single source of truth. So we helped them set this up with all the different study types that they do, whether it's, you know, online surveys is obviously one aspect of this whole, um, of the whole research process. So there's there's also you know, uh, qual research, there's, you know, many, many other types of research that you can put inside of a single repository that allows you to access and aggregate this information accordingly. Interesting. So then is this basically a, a, depo- a repository where then you can, it's completely searchable? Is that how you, is that how you do it? Yeah, it's completely searchable. And then there's other, there's other tools as well, where you can uh, really from project intake, because if, if the information doesn't get in there, then it's, I mean, people have to take the time to put it in, right? So it, there's a project repository or project intake. And then there's also a way that on the back end that it can categorize everything. And then you add different taxonomies, nuggets of information. And even inside of the platform, it allows for if like we're doing a one-on-one interview, you can add different notes, add different um nuggets of information or, hey, this was really good, and then collaborate with your team. And it summarizes all of those things. So really trying to make it easy for for clients to organize all their information and get those insights that they need from the data over time, honestly. That's really what it's, what, what it's about. So what specific, uh, let's say, three tips you would give someone if they were just starting to look into and wanted to start doing atomic research? What three steps would you recommend? Yeah, the three steps is, I would say, you know, make sure that you know, like currently where all the information is, like that's the first step. It's, it sounds simple, but you may have it in like, you know, 20 different parts in the organization. So I think that's one of them. The second one is definitely, it's going to take some time, but you need to dedicate, you know, some resources to it, to get it in there initially. And then I would say have a good training program to allow that information to come in and make it a part of your regular process. That would be like sort of the, the three tips that I would recommend. And start small, like you don't need to like, you know, eat the whole elephant at once, so, so to speak, like break it down, right? Like you can maybe get, maybe get your qualitative research in there first and then your quantitative and start to add it slowly. Otherwise, 
it's going to be, a, you know, uh, too big of a task to handle, I think, depending on where you're starting from. So those would be some of the tips that I'd recommend to get started there. You know, many of us these days are getting many, many surveys all, all the time. What recommendations do you have for people, one, conducting surveys now um, to, you know, make sure that they're not uh, ignored? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. And I think there's a couple things that you can do is when you are sending out a survey, make sure that you would take it yourself. If you wouldn't take it yourself, then don't send it out. And what I mean by that is, you know, we see these long 15, 20 minute convoluted surveys that I don't even think some of the researchers would take themselves or their their bosses would take. So make sure it's something that you would want to take yourself. I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, we we get tasked with looking at client surveys and saying, hey, what recommendations would you have? And I think the biggest one that we have is make it shorter. You don't need to like ask all these questions in one survey, break it up because you're going to, by the end of it, you're going to get a, a ton of respondent fatigue and how valid are those answers even going to be? So, you know, make it like the 10 to 12 minutes, let the respondent know what's expected of them and really be mindful of their time. And I think, again, going back to what I originally said, the good rule of thumb is, you know, would you take the survey yourself? If the answer is no, then don't send it out, like break it up, make it easy, easy to digest. And even include some different question types, I would say, if, if you can, that are more fun and more interactive for for respondents. They really like image chooser type question types, you know, even the the smiley ranking, the thumbs up, anything that makes it fun where they have to, maybe they have to look at some images or do some heat map hotspots. Those kind of things really make it exciting and then want and make it so the respondent wants to continue. So make it interactive. Don't send it out unless you would take it. Okay, so here's the third one is always include the progress bar. I think it's important for respondents to know how much longer the survey is. If you don't include that, they're always going to be wondering when is, when does this end? And by giving them the progress bar, you're giving them a roadmap of, okay, here's the start point, here's the end point, and it's, it's a clear path. So, and I think that also goes back to some of the earlier points I mentioned around, you know, making it easy for them to take, making it interactive and making it fun. And the progress bar, I think, just helps because it it really equates to the amount of time they need to spend on it. I agree. I think one of the things, the challenge with surveys is when people start writing, they have so many questions or they think they have many questions, right? And then they put them all in there. And I'd say a majority of the questions fall into, you know, that's a nice curiosity, but is it really helpful, right? Right. And so well, one of the things I've learned to do and I, I tell people is once you've done the survey, actually create sample data. And then start analyzing that data and see how useful that is. And then quickly find out a lot of it is just, it's not really going to help them. It doesn't really help them at all. And that helps narrow down the questions. So, you know, but I think that's the key. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think oftentimes I see a lot of questions get added when it gets passed around the circle and all these different departments, stakeholders want to put in three to four questions. Well, if you have 24, if you have 20 people that are looking at it, three to four questions adds up to a lot. So. You know, I think that's another another thing is like, you don't need to do everything in one survey, break it up. Just because you have the respondent there doesn't mean, they, doesn't mean they need to answer 50 questions about, you know, some random thing. So I think that's a great point. What are you seeing is the ideal length of surveys now? Yeah, it's 10 to 12 minutes. Anything I think above that is you see a lot of respondent fatigue. So I would say if it's more, definitely you need to incentivize them with, 
outside of just the if it, if they're using an online sample outside of the normal points that they would get. If you're surveying the customer list, definitely incentivize them. Let them know how much it's going to take. Like, hey, this survey on average is going to take 20 minutes, and we're going to give you $10 for your time or whatever it might be, right? But I think that's the biggest thing is if it's going to be longer, let them know. But I think 10 to 12 minutes is still the sweet spot, preferably less. But actually, I'm, I'm a little surprised. I would have thought you were going to say less than 10 minutes, but you're. you're... I mean, I would <laughs> ideally say less than 10. I'm, I guess I'm trying to balance like respondent expectations and client expectations. And it's a happy medium in that 10 to 12 minute range, I would say. And how many questions is that roughly? It largely depends if it's major questions or how much interaction, but. I would say anywhere from that's probably like 20 to 30 questions, maybe if it's if it's multiple choice or single select. If you're getting big matrix type questions, I would say you want to limit it. Like that's probably like the 15 to 20 question range with the de- demographics included. So, yeah, I was going to say, I think people don't realize when they're doing surveys, they should be allocate at least anywhere from five to eight questions going to be demographic questions, right? Yeah. And then the rest are going to be substantive things that they really want to find out. Yeah. And those, those take time. Like the demographic questions might be like, oh, make sure you throw the demos in there. But it's going to take time for the respondent to think about some of these things if they don't know it readily, like their income or you know other things like that. So it, it could take, some, take a little bit longer than you think. What are the top three common mistakes most people do when they're doing service? I think one you're going to say is time, right? Having it yep. too long. So that's one. But what, what are three other ones that are common mistakes that, that people do? Yeah, I think a common mistake is trying to make it too complicated with um, overly complex logic that makes it hard for not only the researcher to program, but also the respondent to understand like the path that it's going. I think that's a common mistake. And then another another mistake that I see that I think it needs probably needs to be addressed in some in some manner is like make sure your questions make sense before you send them out like i see a lot of survey questions and that get put out there that if you think about it it's like it's bad design the answer options don't make sense it's missing things so make sure like you're you're proofing the survey and having to go through multiple rounds of testing before you send it out to the respondent, because then I think you're not valuing the respondent's time. But yeah, there may be one of 400 or 500 completes that you get, but you really need to value their time. So make sure that the survey has a prop- proper answer options, I think, and questions make sense. The logic isn't overly complex and be cognizant of the amount of time that it takes for the respondent to, to complete the survey. Are there any questions that you think that it, 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 it surprised you that people often don't include in terms of a particular area or, or avenue and that you wish, you know, that people realize that they should really think about including questions, you know, of this type of format or, or this area? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple. I'm a big fan of anytime you can use images because I think it helps the respondent. It makes it more interactive. And even if you have a list of, of answer choices, Add an image to it. I think that's an easy one. So an image type question. I think that like max diff doesn't get enough play. I think that's another, if you have, if you're asking like a battery of matrix, if you have the matrix matrix question type, you're asking a battery of questions. The average is probably going to be, if it's a one to five scale, all of them are going to be like in the three to 3.2 range, right? So you don't really have any clear delineation of like what is a better choice or not. But I think if you can use more max diff in that situation, you have a, you'll have more of a clear share of preference between answer options. So I would say that's another one. And then 
One second, if you don't mind, but please explain yeah. max diff for some people who may not know what that means. Yeah, yeah. So max diff is you have a list of options. It could be, let's say, choose your favorite color. Let's say, make it easy. And you have red, blue, green, and purple, let's say. And then on one side, you have most and least. So then you have to, it goes through a series of progressions depending on the answer, the answer options and the, the model that you're using. And you pick one that you like the most, one that you like the least. And then in the, in the end, once you go through that exercise, you get the share of preference at the end, which gives like, you know, 25% like blue, 10% like purple, making those numbers up, obviously. But that's essentially a simplified explanation of max diff. But it allows you for clear delineation between those answer options where in a matrix scale, yeah, it's good. You're, you're getting these, you know, you're getting these options and so forth. But the line between them is they're all going to be in like the three, 3.2 or, you know, 3.6, depending on the average for those, because obviously some are going to pick one to two, some are going to pick four to five. So it's going to end up in the middle. So that's one reason I like max diff. Like you're talking about on a, on a five point scale. I mean, some people can have a seven or 10 point scale, right? Yeah. Then it's going to be, you know, those averages will be skewed, but they'll all be kind of bundled around each other. That's a good point. So that's one reason I like max diff, but even I think it's a it's a question type that could be used more in other applications. And then one one question type that I see being used um, pretty frequently that that I actually like, and I'm seeing it more and more in usability research is still like the heat map or hotspot. I'll talk about heat map because I think it's you know a little more relevant. Is we're seeing with a, a lot of our clients in the gaming industry where you know they'll put in an, an image of of their game or level or even a character and just say like, Hey, what do you like about this image? You know, highlight the area that, that your attention draw gets drawn to first, they'll highlight it. And then on the back end, they'll get a clear heat map of that. So I like those question types where they're kind of interactive yet. They give some on the back end when the clients are analyzing the data, they can get some clear insights of, of choice or preference. So those are some question types that I, Obviously, it depends on the research that you're doing and the application of it, but I think that often get, you know, kind of uh, for, not forgotten, maybe forgotten about is a strong word, but it can easily be, you know, kind of left out of the, of the survey. So let's talk a little bit of something that I don't think people often talk about, and that's flow of a survey. Yep. Right. There's a certain flow, I think, that, that would really work well. And what I mean by that, having a little bit of ups and downs in the, in the survey. Uh, for example, there's uh, questions that are just, you know, question answer choice, but then maybe throwing in some of these visual questions you're talking about to add some kind of interest and flow and differentiation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think flow is, is, a, big, is a big aspect of it because I think if you've taken more than one survey, you kind of know, oh man, they're going to ask me the I kind of know the path they're going to take me down. They're going to ask me these matrix questions or this or that. And I think the flow definitely helps out. But I think also, and maybe this is, you know, kind of to your point uh, around flow is, you know, it's okay to like break it up into sections and give some like a pres- just a presentation text to the respondent of, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about now and give them sort of a roadmap, kind of going back to the simplify, you know, the simplicity of a progress bar, but giving them a roadmap of, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next five questions and so on, and then break it up and let them know. So that way there's a roadmap and they're not getting lost between, okay, where's this going? Is, am I going to be answering like these matrix questions until the end of the survey or, or what's going to be happening? So I think that's good. And then I would say another thing with flow, and this might be a, another tip is 
if you have really important questions, ask them first. I think you're going to get better answers there because it's, again, if, if you have a long survey, there's respondent fatigue at the end. So try to put those first. And then even if it's a hard population and you don't get the number of completes that you might need, you'll still have the, the data to like, you know, your most pertinent questions. So ask like the most important questions first, if you can, I think that's another good, um, another good tip that kind of, I think parlays with the flow that we're talking about and just making sure that it's a nice continuation and there's not too many ups and downs. Yeah. And that's actually one of the, uh, a good point you bring up. Ask key demographic questions that are going to branch off up front as well, because then that can help with the flow as well. Right. If you're going to take, let's say uh, one gender down and uh, one path versus another path, um, yep. you know, that's something that if you do up front, it makes it much easier uh, and much better as, in terms of qualifying as well as uh, having flow for each one, having a, uh, their own unique experience as they go through the survey. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Tell me about communities, online communities. What role are they playing in market research and what makes them good for uh, as a market research tool? Yeah, communities is like my first love, I think, of market research a little bit. When I got into the, the tech, I really focused on communities quite a bit. So I really like this aspect. You know, it's funny. It's been like the most emerging technology for the past 10 years, which is interesting to me because it's still, you know, emerging, although it's slightly less so than initially, but online communities is great. Like we have, you know, communities with like Energizer, for example, where they have their customers in and think about Energizer's model where it's a highly competitive space, like the battery market or air fresheners or, um, or like, you know, AC pro, which is another product that Energizer Holdings owns. So it's highly competitive and they need up-to-date insights on what's going on, the different, you know, what's going on in the market. So they have a, an ex I'll give you an example. They have a community in the US and LATAM and other in four or five areas around the globe that they can use to get a pulse on what's going on. And really they've leveraged this continuous discovery framework that's put on the community that that's what we really like to talk about is this continuous discovery framework because it lends itself to not only agile, which obviously is like, you know, big thing in this day and age, getting those quick insights and leveraging some different concepts, types, and so forth, but really allows for like the pulse insights and that continuous discovery over time and really helps out throughout, you know, the pandemic and obviously um, even beyond with getting these insights quickly. And to me, it really is around helping out like three main areas for a company. And that is around the customer. Like, do you know your customer? Do you know what they like, their dislike? Do you know how their preferences are changing? The third is the company. Do you know all your products? Do you know their competitive advantages over other products and things to that nature? And then the fourth is the market. Like, what is the market saying? Is it, um, what are the economic trends? What are your competitors doing that you need to know more about? So really the continuous discovery framework when applied on a community, I think helps answer like those three broad areas. Obviously you can go more in depth and you can get some other information from stakeholders, but that's something that I think the, the community's continuous discovery framework for communities really, really solves for is, are those three broad concepts. Can you give me an example of a company that uh, did this in terms of communities and doing con continued discovery and how they've benefited from that? Yeah. So I know, um, you know, my earlier example was the Energizer. So they've really benefited from it because they can get a quick pulse on what's going on in the market and adapt to, to certain changes. 
I don't think I can speak to like specific examples because it's proprietary to them, but I know that they test out a lot of different concepts and then use that to iterate on and apply it to further research and then also apply, you know, to their business. If they need to launch a new product or if it's, you know, ad placement within a store or even how does our, how does our um, offering look in a store compared to other offerings and using some of those question types we talked about earlier with, you know, max diff and what package do you like, what, what do you not like, and then making decisions there and giving that back to the, the product and design team. So they use it pretty frequently. And I think the big thing is the easy access to their customers. Otherwise they're going to have to use, you know, online sample and filter it out. Maybe they have some lists somewhere, but it's actually hard for a lot of these companies to get access to their customers. Not only, I mean, across the board, it's, it's kind of interesting if, if it's a larger company and you have a good CRM, obviously that, that makes it a little easier and you can pull from your CRM into communities and it just allows you to kind of build on the information. Obviously there's integrations you can, you can pass back and forth, but um, that's really one of the, you know, the benefits as well as just that, that easy access to your customers that you have, you can go to at any time and they've opted in to complete research, which is an, another, obviously a key benefit of, the community's platform. So I would say like the, the biggest thing that it helps out with is just that easy, the easy access, being able to iterate over time and to affect those changes um, at the client's end. So what do you see on the horizon that you think is going to impact uh, either your platform or, or online surveys and, and, and so on? What do you see on the horizon that you find interesting uh, in terms of what's developing? Yeah, I think uh, there's a number of things that, I think we're, you know, we're looking at, I really like some of the, you know, the agile platforms that are out there because they definitely serve a need in terms of what the, what the customers want, like, you know, kind of the, the quick insights, whether it's ad measurement or concepts, concept tests that they want to run. I mean, you can certainly do those within Question Pro, but the easy agile nature of it and, and that I think is something that we're thinking about pretty frequently. The, we kind of talked about earlier with the atomic research and insights, the insights hub. And I think that is still early on, although the, there's other companies out there doing it, sure. But I think it's still at the forefront. It's like, you know, companies have a CRM for their customers, but, you know, what do they have for their data? And we think that is the insights repository. So we're, we're thinking a, a lot about that. And then I think another, another avenue that um, is a little bit still untapped is the ability to do like, um, you know, video chats and, and incorporate more and more video into surveys. Like I'll give you an example. So, uh, like this, we have a live cast question type in in our platform, which allows you know like a video. You give a video response to a question, but then on the back end, you can do facial recognition, so it analyzes emotions on like I think twenty eight or thirty different points. So I can tell if you're if you're tentative, if you're happy, joyful, which really helps validate not only the respondent's answer but also how truthful it is, right? I think that's something that's interesting. And then, so you get that emotional response. You also get the sentiment analysis. So I think still in like the, I think as an industry, we're still in the early stages of using video and also like what layers are we applying on that video for analysis? I think that's that's pretty early on. I would like to see more, you know, kind of video open ends in surveys. I think that's another way to make it interactive. And I think we're on the precipice there of, of what's possible. So. I think those are like probably the three of the larger trends that 
that at least I'm thinking about and, and what can we do to incorporate more and more of that in, in, in the work that we do. Is there an area of market research you would like to delve into further yourself? Yeah, my, myself, it's, um, it's interesting. I feel like I, I think it kind of goes back to me what we were talking about earlier is like when you're just, you know, when you're working and you're doing things and it's kind of hard to, to take yourself up out. That's why I like kind of going to conferences because I can see, you know, sort of uh, different things that are happening, but I can't think of actually anything specifically that I would like to delve, delve into further. I think it would go back into more of like more of the video and how can we, you know, get better engagement, not only in communities, but in surveys through, through video. So I'd probably say something in that realm off the top of my head, but I bet if you gave me a day to think about it, I'd come up with, you know, <laughs> another, all, some other good stuff for you. But. Sure. Is there anyone in the world of market research you would love to have lunch with? And if so, why? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, actually, I've been fortunate in the position I'm in to have, like, meet a lot of the people that um, in the industry that I've kind of looked up to and so forth. But um, I think, uh, I don't know if there's anyone specifically in the research world that I'd like to have lunch with that I haven't already like had some interaction with already. Maybe you, I'd like to have lunch with you. I think <laughs> seemed like an interesting guy that we could talk to. I could talk to for hours. So I have a feeling you and I could talk for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I look forward to doing that. Yeah, well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, Dan. I really appreciate uh, sharing your stories and insights and uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>